Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. This is episode 60, and because it is episode 60, I wanted to take a moment to uh, delve into a bit of family history with you. I hope you don't mind this delving into the Allen family history that I'm about to do, but it's something that has been on my mind for quite a while. So I've known for a long time that my paternal grandmother was a writer and that she was the kind of writer who was extremely shy about her output, or at least so I'm told. Um, I know that the family had a little magazine that they used to put together and she used to write short stories for that. But as far as I know, she never really sent any of her work out into the wider world for publication, mainly for fear of rejection. And so my dad has talked to me about this and that's been one of the motivating factors for me in getting over my initial terror and sadness around rejection and just keeping on sending stuff out. You know, I think about my grandma and I just think, well, I'm sending this out for you too because, you know, I'm going to show that it's not going to kill me, even if it's going to come back with its tail between its legs. And there's another part of that corner of the family that has become more and more significant to me over the years. So I've known since I was quite young that my grandmother's brother, Jack, um, was a poet. And he was a poet who published books and we had his book sitting on our shelf for many years. Uh, his selected poems, 39 to 75, and he published under the name John Blight, but we would refer to him in conversation as Jack Blight. And yeah, it was a real point of pride to me, and, and I knew that at least one of the poems in this collection was uh, part of the canon for senior school examination, so I thought that was pretty cool that people had to read my great uncle's poetry and and say what they thought about it but I guess I just assumed that as time went on he kind of fell out of the canon as as happens you know the way that that canon is it's quite flexible and dependent on what's fashionable at the time and and what becomes important to future generations but then a little bit more recently I picked up my penguin anthology of Australian poetry the John Kinsella edited anthology and I thought I wonder if John Blight is in here and sure enough went to the biographical notes and saw that he is in fact here. John Blight 1913 to 95 was born in South Australia but raised in southeast southeast Queensland. Blight was part owner of a number of timber mills. He also did stints as an accountant and later a professional writer. His first collection of poetry was The Old Pianist, and his selected poems, 1939-90, to were published in 1992. His reputation largely rests on his numerous sonnets on sea themes, of which he wrote multiple books, though the themes of his poetry taken across his oeuvre are wide-ranging, as he noted himself. So we're going to get into that in a moment, his uh, John Blight's use of the sea and whether he was a uh, just a poet who wrote about the sea or whether there was something more to it. 
But it, it is a little sad for me to read that and to think, well, in 1995, I was in primary school, um, but I didn't have any relationship with uh, my great uncle Jack. And I don't even really know if I met him. And of course, at, you know, like 10, 12 years old, you're not going to be able to express to your great uncle, like, it's really important to me that you're a poet because I'm going to be a poet one day too. Like, I certainly didn't know that at, at such a young age. But I do wish there had been a little bit more crossover in our lifetimes. And I, I also wish that I had spoken to my grandmother more about him and also about her own writing. But there are, there are fragments of John Blight that have come back to me over the years and they're kind of... I have a strange reaction to them because it's it's funny having this figure in the family who who had this what turns out to be quite significant poetic reputation um but is now you know it, it's he's he's not really part of the Australian poetry canon anymore but he is there um I picked up a selected of his uh the 39 to 90 selected um, in a secondhand bookshop in Sydney a couple of months ago and there's a quote on the back that's really quite stunning. It says, the poems are simple, demotic, homely, yet elevated and absolutely inimitable. They turn off effect after effect in the most casual way and reflect a talent that is so advanced that the whole cast of mind is poetic. One is reminded of the lifetime achievements of the later years of William Carlos Williams. How nice to have somebody write that in the back of your book. Um, yeah, really, really incredible. So I sort of read that and I think, geez, that's a high bar. <laughs> that's a pretty high bar. But I don't know. I don't get the sense that John Blight necessarily thought of himself as, you know, one of the leading lights of Australian poetry. And the reason that I say that is that um, I happen to have got, well, as a family, we discovered um, a lecture of John Blight's that he gave at the University of Queensland um, in 1965. And this lecture has kind of become my guide to understanding who he was. And it's fantastic because it's very straightforward. There's a lot of really practical advice in here about how he became a poet and what he believes poets will most benefit from and so I kind of read this as a stand-in for the conversations that I would have wanted to have had I known him when he was alive. So what I'm going to do is attempt to go through the lecture kind of jumping in and out. There's so much in it and I have hesitated to do this for quite a few months because I feel like I'm not going to do justice to what John Blight was trying to say but I think there are things in here that we can probably all draw things from draw useful things from but yeah I won't be going into every single aspect of it but he starts with, with quite a funny anecdote and description of his starting out as a writer so that the lecture is called the shaping of a contemporary poet in 1965 I began writing verse in sub-junior year at high school during the late 1920s. A friend who worked for a printing firm had a large sheaf of doggerel I had written bound into quite a thick book. It was bound in purple hardboard with an unimaginative title, 
poems printed in gold letters on the cover. I had it hidden under my school desk and gazed at it in admiration when I could. Of course, I was caught admiring it and the English master confiscated it and read it through silently without smile or scowl. He returned it without comment. I misinterpreted this to mean that the stuff was not too bad. My patient friend bound me two more copies and I thought I was a poet. I was sure that I was ready to emulate Shelley or Keats, although I knew very little about their poetry. I was told that the hardest journal to get verse published in was the Bulletin, so I collected a stack of poems, including one about fire, and sent them along to that iconoclastic journal. The Bulletin promptly answered with a jibe that I, quote, should have rushed for the fire brigade instead of a fountain pen. I was about 15 and took the criticism very self-consciously. I burnt my three volumes and all my loose manuscripts. I swam in the river more frequently and went shooting around the bush that St. Lucia was then. I love that glimpse into the totally politically incorrect response from the bulletin um, in the 19, that must have been 1930s or 40s. Just, yeah, so mean, God. Way to crush somebody's poetic dreams. I also love the fact that he thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to be just like Shelley, but hadn't actually read any Shelley or didn't actually know that much about him. That pretty much exactly mirrors my own first forays into poetry. So he goes on a little further and uh, talks about his reading. And he says, I really attempted to write after the early bulletin rejection and was very critical and disappointed with the few attempts I made. I read every available English poet, up to it including the Pre-Raphaelites, very assiduously. I experienced a period of adulation for Milton and was very enthusiastic about Paradise Lost. I carried around a small volume of his minor poems. His rhetoric and plethora of Latinized words and his play with abstractions are at the opposite pole of what I look for in poetry. He goes on to talk a little bit about memorization as well. He says, I began buying the bulletin regularly and, and studied the work of the poets writing for it. This three years away from poetry enabled me to forget most of what I had read and I made it a rule henceforth never to memorize a poem, but to keep my mind clear of anything I read. I have followed this habit so unremittingly that I cannot recite from memory any of the poems that I have written, let alone any other writer's poetry. I do not know whether it is a good habit to get into, but at least it does keep my mind fairly free from echoes. It keeps my mind clear for fresh work and enables me to avoid becoming repetitive. It's fascinating that because you would have thought somebody writing in that time period would have been very much um, encouraged and probably expected to be able to memorize, but he's just saying, nope, I thought that was a bad idea and I've never done it. And he doesn't seem ashamed of that at all. So then he goes on to talk about the role of editors in shaping his writing. And I find this, this section really fascinating because I think it is important to every poet, no matter how minor your interaction with an editor is. I think we all have a story, if we've been submitting for a while, about some kind of response or even just the encouragement of publication from an editor and that becomes that becomes really defining it's a defining moment for us 
So he talks here about the role of the editor and says, I think the most important influence upon my poetry and undoubtedly a considerable influence upon many contemporary Australian poets from about 1938 onwards has been the critical judgment of Douglas Stewart. Stewart edited poetry for the Bulletin from 1938 until 1961. He was, and still is, a fairly prolific poet, obviously an early disciple of Yeats, and a lyrical poet who in his early lyrics strove for feeling rather than meaning. The same healthy exercise is prevalent in the work of some of our more important younger poets, notably Thomas Shapcott. Not to say that many of Shapcott's poems have feeling but no meaning, they have both. But I am explaining how I came to write publishable poetry and it was Stuart who showed me the way. And that way was through feeling rather than meaning, through the senses rather than through the reasoning mind. I shall present my first published poem and you may judge if there is any substance in my contention that I started effectively to write through appeal to feeling rather than reason. My first published poem was The Old Pianist, which appeared in the Bulletin in May 1939. It was again published in the first volume of Angus and Robertson's anthology, Australian Poetry. I listened for old time's sake, but old frame and fame extinguished, famished for old fame, and chill bone fingers hardened as lead comb, and glassy heart and ear as hollow tomb. I kissed dry-lipped as wind on dewless grass, the dull dead graying streamers of her hair. But burdened soul, this mind might never pass, this rib-white gate now fastened with old care. In perished cities of young days it grew, this grey dust of her keys, so old eyes weep, preferring it as gold, and heed a new, new value in her song's loud ban on sleep. Open wide windows and lie awake like day, pressing the dark with eyeballs white as fear, in silence hear her old piano play day in and day out, an immortal year. I listen for old time's sake, but old frame and flame extinguished, famished for old fame, and chill bone fingers hardened as lead comb, and glassy heart and ear as hollow tomb. It's funny how difficult it is to read a poem like that these days and how how much we kind of resist all the rhyming and the kind of, I mean, it is a little bit Milton-esque, isn't it? And the way it is kind of all the, the lines are so tightly wound, there's so much packed into each of them. It's it's difficult. It's funny because it, I find this difficult to access, whereas I'm sure if John Blight was alive today and read a poem of mine, he would say it's very difficult to access. So, yeah, I don't know. It's when I read his work, I don't, I don't think, oh, I just love every line. I love every word, but I am incredibly impressed with the skill that he had. And it's something that I, I don't think I could ever even hope to imitate, let alone reach in any kind of authentic way. So he is remembered if he's remembered at all as a poet who wrote a lot about the sea and he talks directly about that further into the lecture he says it is important not to confuse subject with place in a poem in talking about my own a beachcomber's diary i have heard comment that the subject of these poems is sea that is not really so the sea and its literal are the place of the poems the subject is surely an examination of life 
especially an examination of human life and habit in relation to the life of other creatures. The creatures most different on earth from us are the creatures of the sea. Some of them are conceivably stranger than the life we imagine to exist somewhere in space. By dispassionate comparisons, I arrive at a better understanding of human life. So this brings me to the poem that I read at my little brother's wedding. So when my little brother got married, he and his wife said, oh, we'd love you to read a poem. Maybe you could write something. And I thought, no way can I write a poem for your wedding, but I will, I will dig out a poem of John Blight's and I'll read that because then it will be um, a representation of that family line. There was a smaller representation of the Allen side of the family there, so I thought it would be great to have John Blight in the ceremony somehow. But God, if I didn't agonize about which poem to choose, there are so many poems in here that are mostly wonderful uh, in terms of their positive and, and very beautiful, but then they have this turn. A lot of the great majority of them are sonnets, and they'll have this turn and it'll just go, oh God, I can't read that at a wedding because <laughs> it's just like kind of this down note that it ends on. Um, but I finally found one and I think that this was a good poem to choose. Obviously I'm still, I'm still hesitant about it, but my, my brother and his wife uh, didn't seem to have a problem with it. It's called And About Phosphorescence. The round tank of the ocean reaches far as the eye can see and contains every star and the image of the moon. They are constantly filling it with light. Swirl and awe and their phosphorus glows. Step ashore and slap the wet sand and once more a repetition of stars. They have been filling the ocean with light all their light years. A potion of time and starshine the sea is. The notion of night at sea as dismally black is a joke. Not since Phosphorus, the morning star, first woke has there been any cessation of light pouring into the ocean. It is just as bright in its fastest deeps where fish seem alight. I should mention too that my brother and his wife got married on the beach, so the ocean was right there. So I think it worked pretty well. I mean, I think the poem is a pretty direct statement about the fact that there is light and beauty everywhere. Maybe it's even got a religious element in it, but that's not why I read it. I read it because, you know, there's, as in every family, there's there's plenty of like sadness and um, darkness in my family, but then there's light everywhere as well. And uh, I love the way that John Blight brings together that that idea of phosphorescence which is really important to me that that phenomena in nature is important to me because it's something that reminds me of being on holiday um, and seeing that at the beach he brings that together to talk about this idea that something that might seem dark is actually not like that at all I don't know maybe it's a weird wedding poem I just I'm not sure but I read it and then I got off stage and they got married. It was great. Um, so back to the essay. I, I want to end with this section. Um, the end of the essay is such a fantastic window into the state of publication around 
uh, the mid-60s when John Blight was giving this lecture. It's really, really fascinating. Obviously, the Bulletin is no longer a publication outlet and maybe for many years has not been a relevant publication outlet for poets. But yeah, so he talks, I mean, he talks in the, in the essay about all kinds of contemporaneous figures. Uh, he talks a lot about a poem by Val Vallis that really changed the way that he saw things. He talks about Judith Wright. Obviously, there was that mention of Thomas Shapcott. Um, all these people who are a part of the canon and it's just, yeah, it's interesting that he seems to have kind of stood aside from all of those people. But anyway, so at the end of the essay, at the end of the lecture, he says this about getting published. When the poem is written, the next decision to be made is where to place it for publication. This is very important at the outset of a poet's career. Later on, it doesn't matter because you arrive at a stage where you know if a journal satisfactorily carries your poetry. Don't worry too much about critics. Most of them couldn't write a poem and know only the bare mechanics of poetry. However, the young poet does need wise criticism and this can rarely be obtained from intimate associates to whom he should never expose his work for evaluation. My course was to contribute to the journal then generally recognised as Australia's most exacting market for verse, the Bulletin of the 40s and 50s. I published in some of the little magazines during these years, but mostly upon request from their editors. I did not think too highly of their editorial ability to select competent verse. This position has changed today. The little magazines are much stronger. I consider such little magazines as Southerly, Overland and Quadrant very capable of publishing good poetry and fairly proof against a bad poem. The little magazines used to be very much in the hands of groups and produced volumes of poor poetry. Today you can rely on them. I love that Overland and Quadrant and Southerly were once little magazines. I just love that. I think that's amazing. And then a little further on, he talks about making a book. And this is advice that I have taken very much to heart. He says, it is better to be patient and prepare a book with some quantity as well as quality. However, a book should not be padded with verse of doubtful quality just to make it thick. Let me hasten to add that the tide is still right out for the poet as regards monetary reward. He or she has to labour at the least profitable form of art there is. It may be this that keeps it, to my mind, the purest of all forms of art, perhaps an arbitrary statement to make, but one that I believe to be correct. If the poet cannot make a living from his art, and I know that he cannot, not any poet in Australia, what sort of place has he in the world today? The practical reply is that he should put the lifelong demand that his art will place upon him into more profitable pursuits, such as collecting 1930 pennies or studying race form. Nobody wants him or his art. But however practical such argument may seem, it is not right to the poet. His art wants him, and being wanted in this world by any person or cause is worth all the monetary reward the world can bestow. The poet's place in the world is to be first and foremost a poet. It is strange that in this modern world, almost subconsciously, the community still accepts its need for the poet. It is enough. The poet doesn't have to be a politician, a preacher, or a philosopher. He needs only to ply his art. Now, he probably should have left the lecture there, but he ends on a bit of a down note. What a surprise. <laughs> he talks about criticism and critics, and uh, yeah, it gets, get quite, gets quite bitey here at the end. So this is how he ends the lecture. One more question has concerned me regarding the poet's place in the community. 
Should he be an active critic or should he retire from this field and listen in humble silence to the furious diatribes of the Saturday Morning Reviewer? It is essential for every poet to endeavour to develop a high sense of critical evaluation of his own work, a most difficult accomplishment. In doing this, it is inevitable that he will develop the power to criticise the work of other poets. I think the criticism poets receive in this country is, for the most part, incompetent. There are few critics who ever refer directly to the poetry they are setting out to review. Their statements are mostly generalities, opinions unsubstantiated by quotation and analysis. I have been rather fortunate in that I am not placed with any group or school of poets, but exist in isolation as the least literary of poets. The critics have not tabbed me with their other fish. It is a good position to continue to write from, because I do hold that the poet, or for, or for that matter any other author, can get too close to literature to continue writing it. So that's a little window into John Blight, Jack Blight, the poet the serial submitter to the bulletin, the sea sonnet writer, and yeah, my great uncle. He's obviously incredibly important to me. I mean, he's a family member. He's uh, a poet with his own legacy of work. I don't know whether he is particularly important to the wider poetry community anymore, but I don't think he would really mind, as he says in the, at the end of that lecture, you know, he kind of stands apart. And uh, yeah, I just imagine him walking up and down a beach, thinking up new ideas. So I'll leave you with this. This is the poem that used to be part of, I think, the HSC or, or some kind of exam. People used to have to read this and come up with smart things to say about it. And this is probably a, a much more typical John Blight poem than the one I read for my brother's wedding. This is called Death of a Whale. When the mouse died, there was a sort of pity, the tiny, delicate creature made for grief. Yesterday, instead, the dead whale on the reef drew an excited multitude to the jetty. How must a whale die to wring a tear? Lugubrious death of the whale. The big feast for gulls and sharks, the tug of the tide simulating life still there, until the air, polluted, swings this way, like a door ajar from a slaughterhouse. Poo, poo, spare us, give us the death of a mouse by its tiny hole, not this in our lovely bay. Sorry we are too when a child dies, but at the immolation of a race, who cries? Yeah, you're not going to read that one at a wedding. <laughs> Thank you.